Hello, and welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. And we have a blockbuster show today. Uh, I've got a myriad of guests. And I hope that you enjoy each and every one of them. Uh, I will not prolong it. Well, I'll try not to prolong it because there may be some things I need to say somewhere along the way. But I'm going to go ahead and get to our first guest, who I'm really honored to have. In academia, private sector, government, and media, Professor Juliet Cam is an international leader in crisis management and homeland security. Cam serves as the faculty chair of the Homeland Security and Security and Global Health Projects at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Previously, she served as President Obama's Assistant Secretary at the Department of Homeland Security and as Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick's Homeland Security Advisor. She is also the CEO of Grip Mobility, a technology security company in the mobility space. A CNN National Security Analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and contributor for The Atlantic and Boston's local NPR station, WGBH, KM also advises governors, mayors, and corporations on crisis management. Juliet is the author or editor of six books, including her most recent, The Devil Never Sleeps, learning to live in an age of disasters. Juliet lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts with her husband, Judge David Barron, and has three children. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor and privilege to bring to this podcast, Ms. Juliet Cam. All right, Professor Juliet Cam, how you doing? I'm doing really well. How are you? Doing fine. Um, so I am honored to have you because I want to pick your brain on some things. Uh, first of all, real yes. quick, define Homeland Security. Right. You know, it's we know that it's like the second largest agency or, or now probably the largest agency in the federal government. You were a part of running it. People are kind of confused which agencies yeah. are in or out. So just real quick, just kind of give an overview That's of what great. Homeland Security is. That's great because people often don't know. So there's Homeland Security and then there's the Department of Homeland Security. So the Department of Homeland Security uh, just basically re represents the federal efforts uh, to protect and minimize risk uh, to uh, the United States. I mean, in other words, to the citizens of the United States here domestically. So unlike, say, the Department of Defense, which is still the largest department, which we tend to think of, um, uh, you know, in terms of abroad, the, uh, the Department of Homeland Security from cyber threats to terrorism to uh, border challenges to pandemics, and then, of course, uh, weather-related events, uh, both uh, uh, tries to minimize what we call mitigate risks, and manage response uh, in the light of those threats. People will think of it in the context of 9-11 uh, and the terror attacks on 9-11, but it really is 
uh, focused on what we call all hazards. That's just a terminology we use to represent all bad things that can happen. Um, but it's important to remember it's just about the federal resources. It's not the, so homeland security is different. The way I write about it and think about it is homeland security is about the secure flow of people, goods, ideas, and networks. And I that's how I define it in my work. And I think it's really important that we think of it that way because uh, security, honestly, is kind of easy, right? It's gates and guards and guns and security and all that stuff that you think about. It's the flow part that's hard. We live in a society in which things need to move. So um, it's that that tension and also balance uh, between security and the kind of society we want to be uh, that um, uh, that is that is the focus of you know people like me who are now on the outside. Right. And so just so to kind of give an example real quick. The interstate system is a is a is an example of the flow, right? When yeah. Eisenhower created yeah. that in 1956 to be able to move goods and services and all that stuff, and he saw that in World War II in Germany and and said we need to have that here. So, yeah. So that's that kind of what right. you're doing. And Eric, ironically, when that was, I mean, that's such a great point. Uh, when that was being promoted, the inter interstate highway system one of the ways that they sold it was uh, a homeland reason, right? We didn't call it that, we called it civil defense, which was uh, a quick escape for people from cities uh, in, if there were a nuclear war. I mean, can you believe that? But that was, that was, you know, this is the, you know, wherever at any point in American history, you're selling important efforts, the, the, transit system, interstate transit system was needed regardless. But one of the ways that they they promoted it was the because we they lived in a time when they believed that you would have enough time to evacuate if there was a nuclear war between the US um, and Russia that would later change. And that was when we saw the rise of the of the bunkers and 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 the and the civil defense system to protect people uh, who were in cities. Right. All right. So now that we've kind of given a, given uh, two good definitions of homeland yeah. security, <laughs> let's let's deal with some issues that's happened. So yeah. this this weekend, this uh, I yeah, I guess late it Saturday night, Saturday early Saturday morning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, so. We had we had the the mass shooting in uh, Monterey Park, California. Yeah. Um, we found out that the, the perpetrator was of Asian uh, American Pacific Islander descent, and he was 72 years old, right? Yeah. And he he goes into a place that he had frequented um, as as a dancer. He liked to dance, from what I understand, and 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 killed people. But we still don't know the motive. Yeah. No. The overall question I wanted to ask you is. And this is according to statistics. Now, this is the 33rd shooting that we mass shooting that we've had already this year. And we haven't even gotten out of January. Yeah. What what do you attribute to this phenomenon of mass shootings that have happened uh, in recent years that we we are now? Unfortunately, I think we're being desensitized to. I think that's right. I mean, uh I, I am an analyst for CNN, so I was on air all weekend and or, you know, for the last 36 hours. And um, 
you know, there was this, I'll admit it to you, it's sort of just like, I don't want to admit it, but when I learned that it was not a hate crime, uh, that it was not anti-Asian violence, which we've seen the rise of since uh, COVID uh, and people blaming the Asian community, Asian American community for it, I had relief, right? Like as if 10 dead was okay because it wasn't racially motivated, right? I mean, in other words, yeah. we're just keep lowering the floor here in the United States. So it's hard to know what to attribute exactly. Um, you know, there's obviously, and 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 so I take a, I take a risk minimization approach as I do to all things. That's how I think about security. I don't talk in terms of safe. I talk in terms of safer. So any gun legislation obviously isn't going to solve all problems, but if you can just minimize the harm. Um, uh, in this case, he had what was called or what is colloquially called essentially a, a semi-automatic pistol. It's a hard, it, it, it is not your typical AR, uh, but why do I mention that is because the capacity to kill people very, very quickly uh, is, is, uh, uh, means two things. One means you're going to get higher rates of, of what we call mass shootings, which is four or more people dead in a single incident, not including the shooter, because often they commit suicide or are killed. And the second is it makes it impossible for law enforcement to come in. And in the case that we're talking about in San Francisco, I mean, you were talking about a two minute, two minute and 20 second response time between the first call. Well, the, he's already he's already shot 20 people, right? This is, um, and so that that speed uh, that the weaponry uh, is, is allowing uh, the mass shooters is I think responsible for uh, the incident, uh, the number of incidents. There is a uncomfortable debate going on in my circles. I wrote about it for The Atlantic, where I write about thinking about these kinds of guns and what it means for uh, citizens and what we told them. You'll, you, you've heard of run, hide, fight. You know, in other words, you're you if you find yourself in that situation, run first, hide second, and then fight if you must. Uh, the, these are the lessons from Columbine. Um, as we've seen in a number of incidents, uh, the the um, uh, the recent attack on a uh, in a in a in a drag uh, 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 a bar, uh, and then now with the second incident, because we might, we now have learned that he went to another place uh, right after where they just were able to disarm him. There is something about engagement. You want to distract the shooter. Uh, I'm not talking about good guys with guns. That doesn't work as well as we think it does, like in the movies. Uh, but actually just distracting the shooter ends up being very helpful. So, you know, people are rethinking this run, hide, fight because you, you there's just no time for law enforcement to get there. Um, as for the age, uh, it it's it's unique. I mean, we, we're normally looking at, at, you know, 17 to 25-year-old boys who, boys, excuse me, men who are, Killing uh, in a lot of these school shootings, um, and uh, and this age is unique, and so we'll, we will look to things like mental health and and of course his relationship with that group. The victims also were all older. I think the youngest was 58. We you generally don't get that, especially on a Saturday night. So uh, it goes to the kind of event that he attacked. This is this is true. Is that even if his motivation is not hate, as I said. The, the perception 
uh, by the Asian American community is obviously very uh, catastrophic because this happened on the Lunar New Year celebrations. Those who celebrate the Lunar New Year uh, uh, view that day as and that party that night where the killings happened as the as as setting the stage for the year. That's why there's so much dancing and celebration and family, right? It is okay. Well, we're going to embrace a new year, especially after COVID. And um, where they hadn't had the celebrations for since 2020. And so uh, it is just a tra another tragedy that we will, as you said, that we, I fear we're becoming immune to. Um, uh, and we'll, you know, uh, and, and just view it as the price of admission, I think, unfortunately. Right. And this is the second, it, there was a similar incident last year where a gentleman, uh, from that community went into a church that primarily had members of that community and, and, and had a mass shooting too. Um, yeah. So it, it seems there, the only trend that I can see is that it's personal, right? More yeah. so than anything else. We had the Walmart shooting where the manager shoots his employees, Yeah, you know, but, but I do agree is mental health. And that's something on this podcast, I have made a commitment this year that we're going to highlight, but I want yeah, to get good. to, yeah, I want to and get it's to, also, I mean, it's, I'll say one thing about the mental health issue. It's also for the survivors, obviously the community after the fact, you, you hear more about it. We've got lots of issues with law enforcement, but what I thought was noticeable was the sheriff yesterday. I thought they did a, a good job in keeping the public informed, especially a community that was living in fear. Um, he ended his press conference saying, I'm going to go now because my guys are upstairs and they're 22 years old. And they just saw something that no one should ever have to see. And we're also thinking about the mental health issues around our first responders, which I think goes to questions of stress and and then and then uh, um, uh, conduct that is unlawful. I and so um, I think that's important as well. Yeah, and and just as a disclaimer, so now that you've accepted an invitation, you have an open <laughs> invitation to come back, and maybe when we okay. come back, uh, we'll get more into that that aspect about the PSD, especially yeah. when it pertains to first responders. But I want to, I want to touch on a couple other things real quick. One, right. um, domestic terrorism and white supremacy. Yes. So the FBI has said that domestic terrorism, especially terrorism that's based off of white supremacist, supremacist theory, thought, teaching, rhetoric, whatever, is the number one threat in the United States. Mm -hmm. Why is it that if the FBI is saying that, yes. why is it that the United States government has not done anything to, in your, in your opinion, why yeah. has it not done anything to really, really clamp down? And address yeah. It? Yeah. So I think, I mean, there's a couple of things I, I, it is. I, let me start from this. It is that the white supremacy is the 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 number one domestic terrorism threat. Uh, we still have an international threat. It's how I came into 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 this um, uh, field as I was a in counterterrorism before September 11th, and and it took me a while to sort of shift my my thinking. A couple things. So one is it. I, I want to accept your premise, uh, and then and then also give people some hope. <laughs> so okay. so accepting the premise is is uh, it is very difficult 
to find the moment between horrible people with horrible thoughts and horrible people with horrible thoughts who are then going to act on it. So, so it just in terms of our domestic laws, in terms of First Amendment, in terms of platform. And so the challenge is, of course, that these guys are, are finding each other online, they're amplifying their hate. They, 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 I don't, I, I, I reject the notion of lone wolves. I don't think these guys are lone wolves. They're feeding off of each other. They're amplified by a political structure and certainly the former president who are, who are nurturing it, uh, uh, directing it in some cases. So, so uh, it, it is a challenge. There's, uh, and it's a, it's a political third rail for, for law enforcement, which tries to stay out of it. I think they're beginning to realize they can't stay out of it, that, that the attacks on sort of, you know, democratic leaders or, or Nancy Pelosi's husband, for example, but also, you know, just, just in, I think we, in New Mexico, this, this Republican, this guy who lost, who went after uh, democratic leaders. So, so we have to keep vigilant on this because the, the focus isn't just the big people, Biden or Pelosi, it is actually Democrats and others who are just running for office. We're never going to hear of them, um, uh, but who, 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 who might uh, uh, abandon uh, political careers and political engagement because of fear. Uh, and so uh, that is the, the challenge. So let me also say what I like, what, why I like some of the stuff I'm seeing. Um, after January 6th, I mean, I had been yelling from the rooftops that Trump is inspiring a, a, a terror movement for four years. And he did it through the winks and the nods and the dog whistles, but they were organizing, they got bigger. January 6th was different. I, I do like the January 6th committee view him as having directed that as part of an overall strategy to uh, undermine the peaceful transition of power. Uh, uh, since then though, there are some good metrics. It's not just the, th the close to a thousand people who've been arrested and indicted and if not convicted who were there that day. Why is that important? I know people say, oh, those are the small people. It's important because terror groups uh, have to recruit and they have to get money and they find, and it will be difficult for them to do so uh, if people think I'm going to lose everything for being part of this, right? And you hear these guys who are, I don't feel sorry for them, but who are arrested, who are saying, you know, I thought Trump would, 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 would excuse me or whatever. The other is, of course, now we're going after the big groups, Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, uh, and possibly even the former president uh, for violence and insurrection. That, again, matters because uh, while you'll you won't stop all bad people from thinking bad things, uh, you do you could, can minimize the harm of, of 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 a large proportion of those going to violence. And I think that's my, that's always been my focus. I I know people. I know we wish we live in a country in which uh, people were not like they are in terms of the hate and the bigotry and the racism and the homophobia and all and the transphobia as we're seeing. Uh, but um, uh, um, given that I have to accept that, uh, the goal is to minimize the 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 ability of them to be successful of using violence as a as a as a tool of politics. It's not over yet by any stretch of the imagination, but there is there are some good metrics out there. Yeah, and I I'd, I would be remiss if I didn't put in the atmosphere well or just highlight yeah. on this show the, the pushback from African-Americans, right? Because yeah. ever since January 6th happened, the basic feeling has been, 
if that was a Black Lives Matter protest, that yeah. the Department of Justice would have swept in quicker. The historical context has been, you know, whether it was the Black Panther movement or even Martin Luther King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the Department of Justice and everybody was was quick to wiretap and surveil and do all this. And so black folks feel that a lot of them feel that because this is white people that, well, now we've yeah. got to make all these extra considerations and all that. It's, do you understand that sentiment? Absolutely. I absolutely, I mean, I, I, I absolutely do. Or the both sides that I often get when I focus on uh, um, right wing um, violence, uh, you know, you get the, well, the left, first of all, you cannot compare the actions of a few people in progressive movements uh, who might uh, go to violence or, uh, or which, you know, or, or attack buildings, which is a form of violence, the same as a, as a political apparatus uh, and a political establishment utilizing violence as an extension of politics. So they're just apples and oranges every, uh, and, and, but what, what, um, People try to do in 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 my spaces say, well, BLM was violent here in Atlanta, and therefore, you know, it's the same. It's not the same uh, th to have a white supremacy movement that is found um, nurturing. That's the word I use is nurturing within a uh, within um, uh, our our political body is uh is is a magnitude and threat uh greater than anything you've ever seen on uh on 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 um uh on political movements that are on the progressive side and uh and it's just it's a crutch you know all these the people who say both sides it's just such a it's, it's just being stupid honestly they're just being stupid and they know it and i recognize that in terms of what the white supremacy and and the the length of time i'm uh when i explain i see good news i'm not uh i'm not uh forgiving uh what i know would probably have been the case if it had been uh an african-american rally or i mean you you and i both know that if 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 uh the audience had been uh uh, uh an african-american uh protest that had gotten out of hand or some members of it went into the Capitol, there would be a very different narrative. Uh, there would, there would have been, there would have been, uh, you know, the, the police would, would have not acted as they did. Right. And so, and, and just to highlight your point real quick to talk about the, um, uh, there was a protest in Atlanta that, that got violent this, this past weekend uh, where, and that was based off of, ironically a protest about the police building a new training center. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's the kind of example that as you right. would say, the, the right would say, well, see those people are liberals and yeah. you know, they're just as violent or whatever. I, well, I, I mean, I would like to say, cause I, I'm, I was on air about this on before, before the next horrible thing. Cause that's my job for CNN. I would say, Something about Atlanta. I am. I'm getting hit by the left for some of the things I said, um, and and we may disagree on this, but I I think it's not a helpful narrative. Uh, as I'm hearing that 
that going after property is somehow different than going after people. It is different, obviously. Harming people is different. But that there's something not violent about going after property. For one, that property is likely owned, given the community, by African-Americans. It's their shops. It's their stores. It's their family businesses. Uh, and the second is uh, there is this question about outsiders. I People could come into Atlanta, protest whatever. You know, obviously, there's debates about the training facility, which ironically, right, was supported as a way to get better policing into uh, into a police department that that like most metropolitan police department needs it. But I think when just from a from the law enforcement perspective, when I look at the numbers, if the only people being arrested for violence are the out of staters, it does make me uh, think that it's undermining the community engagement and protest, which has been nonviolent, right? And so uh, getting getting that that violent that that violence, whether you view it as violence or not, you know, in terms of of uh, against property, out of uh, an important community engagement effort, which is we don't want this facility here for reasons X, Y, and Z. We can disagree on the on the substance of it. Uh, is important. Uh, and I looked at those numbers and it's it's telling to me, they look, you know that there's people that want to make noise and the community itself just wants to make um, uh, make themselves heard. It's a very different thing. Right. And yeah, there's there's a whole lot. But but the, the, yeah. no, I don't disagree with you. As, as somebody that's been certified in law enforcement, somebody that's yeah. been an elected official, violence is violence, whether it's toward yeah. a person or toward property. That's exactly right. I mean, and, and from the perspective of the person whose property it is, that could be their livelihood. Exactly. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, so, and then and that, that's a, you know, uh, and, and it, the, it's a it's an important thing to remember uh, if you think it's a harmless thing. Right. So there's so many things I could talk to you about <laughs> and we've got limited time. But I, I did want to ask you this particular question. So. There's been this whole thing about TikTok, right? Yeah. And now city governments, the federal government is banning its use. But yet Twitter, to me, is just as much as a threat with this man, Mr. Musk, over it. Now, I, yeah. I'm, I'm on both platforms, but I don't have anything other than this show maybe to infiltrate. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so I'm not really worried about it, but why is there such an emphasis on TikTok and there doesn't no, seem no, to be no. that much emphasis on Twitter? Right. So, I mean, well, the, the emphasis on Twitter is interesting. You know, it's it's such a, a I'm a big Twitter person. I find it uh, since all the changes, it's, it's both less enjoyable uh, from the experience of sort of what am I seeing? Am I learning anything? Is anything um, and it's less helpful. And what do I mean by that is for someone like me and you who are in news, I find the experience before the experience was incredibly helpful. I was learning a lot. I don't find myself learning anything. I just get honestly crap. And so from a consumer perspective, I'm just not on it as much and I'm not engaged with it as much just because life is short and <laughs> I'm, I don't need to spend my time complaining about Twitter, right? Like all these people are on Twitter complaining about Twitter. I was like, okay, I'm okay. So that's for, the other is just a, something interesting since you you do come from this background. As you know, Twitter was incredibly helpful 
uh, during emergencies and disasters. It is way that public safety emergency management got information out for localities. It is ways to tell you to stay put or evacuate or whatever. That has also been lost and that is a huge harm. Um, I do think the Twitter, I don't know what's going on. I think it's lost a lot of its capacity for advertising because I think advertisers hear people, not hear me specifically, but hear about the experience being less enjoyable. And if you just look at, at the number of people who are on it for how long, it's just changed. TikTok is a different threat, which is a, so that, so the threat of Twitter is just, it's too democratic, right? It's not controlling content. Well, it turns out that content control is the monetization. I, a company does not want to give money to a platform that is also hosting Nazis. That's a, that seems to me a good thing, right? Um, TikTok is different, which is accessed by a foreign intelligence apparatus, the Chinese, and its ability to infiltrate through TikTok in terms of data acquisition of, 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 um, of information, privacy issues. And so um, they're sort of different in kind. One is about the company, the, 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 the structure itself, who owns it. The other is about the content. Both are uh, not good. I mean, I just find, I, to be honest, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, a category of one, but as someone who lived in this space, um, 2023 already, and I think I'm happier for it, to be honest, I'm just, the experience is just not helpful. And that's important. All right. And so I know you've got to go, but I got to ask you, but I yeah. got, but I got to ask you this question about the classified documents because yeah. that's, that's out there. I have a problem with pre former president Trump and current president Biden with it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What's your take on what we know so far? And, and okay, good. And I'll there. give you a, as you know, and, and uh, as listeners, will, I, I have three kids and one has a late start. So you get to get to hear me rush off after this. Uh, so neither, look, uh, 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 both are mistakes. There's no question. But I, I think about things in terms of uh, qualitative uh, rather than the mistake itself. Uh, uh, from what we can tell so far, Biden had old documents. Those are going to be less relevant to foreign agencies and foreign intelligence agencies. Uh, they are... Uh, and then when confronted with it, he gives them up, right? He's not, he's not pretending that they're his. Uh, Trump has recent documents, right? He was just recently president uh, that are appearing. We don't even know where because no access has been given and that are, are then claimed to be his. Those are two very different arguments. And I, I, I push back on the narrative that this looks bad for Biden. It only looks bad because everyone's saying it looks bad. It's just, it's just different. It's like, it's, to me, it's like apples and oranges, but, but, um, uh, uh, and, 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 you know, just basically raises a question of like, you know, uh, uh, once again, this both sides ism. it's just, these are just qualitative differences, but, uh, I wish we weren't talking about it. That's for sure. Yeah, I, I agree. Mean, I, yeah, I agree with you on that. So, in the in the last few seconds we have left, uh, I usually allow guests to uh, boast about something or oh. give contact information. So, if you got oh, a great. book out or I got do, a website, go right ahead. I do. So, I am still on Twitter. If I must admit it, at Juliet J U L I E T T E K A Y Y E M. 
Um, and my book about learning to fail safer in terms of beginning to accept disasters and crises as part of our standard operating procedure, so to speak, and what we can learn uh, 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 so that we can do better uh, when uh, the next time, because there will be the next time. It's a book called The Devil Never Sleeps, uh, Learning to Live in an Age of Disasters is out now. So thank you so much. All right. All right. And thank you for coming on. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to catch y'all on the other side. Thank you so much. All right, and we are back. So, how cool was that, right? To have somebody with the insight that Professor Cam has. Uh, I thank her for fitting me in on her busy schedule, whether it's, you know, juggling between being a mom and being an analyst for CNN. I really, really am honored that she she was able to 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 put me into that and and hopefully we'll be able to get her back on to go into some more details about issues that deal with homeland security and really to follow up on that PTSD that first responders deal with again like I I said in the interview and I've said on a previous podcast you know mental health has got to be the main issue to me this year, public policy wise, we've got to incorporate. I know we talking about debt ceilings and all this other stuff, but we've got to incorporate mental health in policy discussions. Again, the challenge that I've put out to all 52 state legislatures this year is when you're doing your budgets, do not cut a dime in your department of mental health. Not one, not a penny, nothing. If anything, find some money to put into that budget, that appropriation, instead of using it as a place where you can make cuts. Because we've, we've paid the price for that. And we talked about some of those issues in the previous interview. But again, Professor, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for being on. Now, uh, my next guest is somebody, first of all, I'm, I'm honored that all the guests come on, right, and say I want to be on the podcast. So, you know, but Professor Kayam and this sister coming on right now, these were people that I really went after, right? Uh, and other people I kind of invited and they accepted and I didn't have to do the, the, the strong sell. But this particular guest that's coming on now, yeah, she, 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 she made me a lobbyist again. <laughs> but it's got to be worth it because I was attracted to what she was saying on LinkedIn. And... Even though she claims she's not political, it was probably some of the best political commentary that I've read. Uh, And so I wanted her on, and she has written a new book called The Waymakers. And so let's promote the book, get her on, 
And let's have a discussion. So I am really honored uh, that she has accepted that. And I look forward to having the conversation. Uh, the person I am referring to is Tara J. Frank. Tara J. Frank is an equity strategist who has advised and educated thousands of Fortune 500 executives across multiple industries and large member organizations. Her work, fueled by a deep belief in the creative power and potential of everyone, focuses on building bridges between people, ideas, and opportunity. Before founding her culture and leadership consultancy, Frank spent 21 years at Hallmark Cards, where she served in multiple executive roles, including Vice President of Creative Writing and Editorial, Vice President of Business Innovation, Vice President of Multicultural Strategy, and Corporate Culture Advisor to the President. Tara J. Frank resides in Dallas, Texas, with her rock star husband, two of their six children, and their three dogs. She is also a proud Spellman alumna and a member of the Executive Leadership Council, the Network of Executive Women, and Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor and privilege to have as a guest on this podcast, Ms. Tara J. Frank. All right, Tara J. Frank, how are you doing, sister? You doing good? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. How about you? I am doing lovely. Uh, this is a blessing to have somebody of your caliber on, and uh, I am honored to talk to you about your book. But as I stated in my intro, I also want to talk to you about what got my attention. And these were LinkedIn posts. So we're going to go back mm -hmm. and forth on that a little bit. But okay. one of, I'll follow wherever you lead me. That's, thank you. Um, <laughs> so one of the things I also like to do, if I can, is to find a quote that either relates to the person, either something they said, something that they posted, or... Uh, uh, something that relates to the work they do or whatever. So mm -hmm. this quote comes from Isaiah 43, two. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you and through the rivers. They shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. What does that scripture mean to you? Oh, I was closing my eyes when you were reading it. Um, you know, that's one of the scriptures that is directly tied to the way making concept. Um, and one that really kind of kept my focus pure as I was writing uh, the way makers, because I believe there are people all over the world in workplaces who need kind of shielding and support uh, that is articulated in that particular scripture. So I, I try to remember who I'm doing this work for, and it is the people 
I do not want to continue to be scorched <laughs> uh, by by the workplace, as we know has been happening for a long time now. Yes, ma'am. And um, I do have a, another one. It was a question. It was somebody that asked this question and you reposted their asking of the question and their response to it. But I want to get your direct response to this question. How do humans convince humans to act humanly toward humans? <laughs> well, um, I don't necessarily think humans can convince humans to do anything. That, that's not necessarily the way that I think about it. I do believe that if we seek the humanity in other people. And if we reveal the humanity in ourselves, it increases the chances that we will meet ourselves on common ground, which is our shared humanity. Okay. That's a great answer. And you got human in there several times too. That's good. <laughs> um, so, you, you've publicly expressed, and, and I saw this expression on, on LinkedIn, your mm -hmm. concern about corporations cutting their uh, DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, and, and inclusion budgets. Yep. One was, one, was this not expected two and a half years after the summer of 2020, especially in a culture where former CEOs are saying, they don't want the woke generation to lead businesses because they are more concerned about diversity than shareholders. <laughs> yeah. Um, so no, not necessarily surprising, right? Unfortunately. I mean, I think we all know that three years ago now, uh, after the murder of George Floyd, and of course we were all kind of swept up in COVID as well and everything that meant, I think we knew that some people started their diversity, equity, and inclusion journey right at that point, which is a sign in and of itself, right? That this isn't something they were necessarily um, thinking a lot about before that, that it wasn't really a high value before that or a business priority before that. So the companies that really just kind of started their journey or kicked off their journey three years ago, the fact that they're firing their chief diversity officers or minimizing their budget is is of course not a shock to me nor should it be a shock to anyone um I, you know i always say that we can we can inspire people to change or we can expect them to change and that was a time in our nation's uh story i'll say where the expectation to change was extraordinarily high so for the people who responded to that expectation versus believing that it was beneficial to their businesses, that it would help their businesses be more sustainable, et cetera. When that expectation began to wane for whatever reason, or at least the pressure associated with the expectation began to wane, um, yeah, not, not a shock at all, right? That they would take their foot off the gas and kind of back up um, from some of the promises that they made. Yeah, I so was- it makes sense to well, <laughs> Yeah, well, I was- I was- um kind of taken aback from the quote that the um, 
was the guy that was over Home Depot. Mm-hmm. And he was the one who really was kind of pushing that. And of course, Home Depot did a um, press statement right away saying he's no longer affiliated with the company. He's retired. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but, I, but I also know that his politics is related mm-hmm. to the former president and all the other stuff. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you find in your in your work that that intersection between business and politics kind of drives whether you can get into a company or get a particular client or you kind of bypass that and just go straight for uh, I mean you you does is that has that been a barrier to you in getting in and talking to certain certain corporations? Well, that's a really good question, but I don't know that I can answer it fairly because I don't I don't really go to clients to try to get business. Um, clients come to me, and so if they come to me, they have generally a sense of who I am and how I approach this work. So getting to do business with clients isn't a problem because there's kind of a baseline understanding of how I see the world and the nature of the work I do. What I will say is once I am kind of working with clients, these challenges associated with politics and with the binary ways of looking at the world, that stuff starts to pop in terms of um, the strategies that clients may feel comfortable employing, right? The decisions they may feel comfortable making, um, how brave or courageous, quite honestly, they feel about uh, moving forward with certain you know, transformational choices. That's a challenge that I think all companies are having right now because what they want to do is create equitable and inclusive, the ones who want to do it, let me just state that disclaimer, the ones who want to do it, what they want to do is create equitable and inclusive environments for everyone. And so starting to kind of feel this pushback that the nature of the work um, is, is being accused of marginalizing right, or hamstringing certain populations is concerning to them because it's, it's counter to what they're trying to achieve in the per- first place. And they're really wrestling with how to reconcile all that, to be honest. I I have my philosophy about it. And there are things that I share with clients about kind of this rising resistance that I hope is sometimes liberating for them. But it's a real concern that that they're trying to figure out how to address. All right. So kind of along that vein, I'm I'm really going to try to combine two questions into one. Mm Mm-hmm. So you said in reference to Herschel Walker's unsuccessful bid for the United States Senate, black people are not watching this particular circus afraid our children will want to join it. We are quite (laughs) literally shaking our heads in disbelief that Americans have become so partisan, so fearful, so blinded by division that any person would pick up a pencil and fill in a circle on purpose for a man who is clearly not equipped and you said parenthetically, in knowledge, experience, or acuity to do the job, period. Mm-hmm. The, the other part of the question is, in the book, you, you make this statement, which I think is very profound. Fairness is not a state we can return to. It is one we must create anew. So 
given those facts, what makes you so hopeful that we can achieve a, the lofty goal of fairness, even in a microcosm of society such as a corporate office, and how hopeful, and hopeful again, that the work that you're doing in DEI can be the repair of the breach? Yeah, good question. You know, my hope um, rises and falls, honestly, you know, b based on the day, the week, the month. I I'm a realist. I, I am an optimist, but I'm also a realist. And I think that's what makes the work I do and how I do it um, effective. <laughs> You know, I, I do not believe for a second that I'm going to go into all these companies and somehow, um, you know, everything I say and everything we do together is going to magically transform their cultures from what they were on Monday to what they can then be on a Friday. We didn't get here, you know, in a six month time span that it might take um, for, for an engagement to be delivered or a year or five years or 10 years. We, we got here. Um, over centuries, <laughs> you know, of m multiple isms. And so hope for me is about progress. It's not about fixing things. It's not about completely, I'll say, uprooting, you know, everything that is, is kind of, I talk about it in the book, as you know, as deep roots and sweeping branches. It's not completely uprooting all of those trees. It's saying, you know, what do we have to work with together? Um, what is a, a better future for us, a more preferred future for us? What are we going to have to do to get closer to that more preferred future? What do we need in order to do that? And what are we willing to commit? And how can we make our current workplace culture complete with, you know, the choices we make and the behaviors we exhibit more tolerable, more fair, more connected, right? More aspirational. Um, so that's the work I do. It's about progress. It's about climbing up that embedment curve. It's not about turning everything we know and everything we are inside out and expecting somehow that it's going to look like a totally different garment. So, so I have hope we can do that, right? I have hope we can get better. And that's the hope that drives me and drives my work. Right. And in the book, you, you say that if you didn't have hope, you couldn't do the work. So that's right. I, I, I get that. And it's the same with me and, and politics and all that. Um, you know, but like you said, it's hard. Right. So mm -hmm. Dr. King highlights two particular campaigns that he had that he didn't call successes, but they were learning moments. Uh, St. Augustine, Florida, and, and Albany, Georgia, right? Um, what is, without naming the company's name, but just kind of <laughs> describe the challenge, what mm -hmm. was your St. Augustine? What was your Albany? What was your toughest client yeah. to work with? Yeah, you know, I've, um, the toughest clients for me to work with, and which is why I, honestly try not to work with clients like this anymore are clients who feel they should do something but don't really want to do it 
So, you know, I've had a couple experiences, it's been years now, but I've had a couple experiences where I spent a lot of time and energy. And this work is emotional for people of color, for black and brown people, because it's personal. We, we try to depersonalize it, but we're human beings. And so when people say things and do things, right, that are connected to um, our humanity and, and counter to our humanity, it's hard to not feel that. So I've, I've had clients where I've spent a lot of time and a lot of energy emotionally and practically trying to help them see a more preferred future, you know, drive toward that future. And it has become clear that they really didn't feel compelled to do that at all. They just felt pressured to do it. So those are the experiences for me that are taxing. Um, that's, those are the experiences that essentially taught me um, how to better vet you know, potential partners. Those are the experiences that have caused me to walk away um, from certain clients or certain inquiries that have come since. You know, I always say uh, to people, I don't drag cats out from under beds. And what I basically mean is, look, I can help you create a more equitable and inclusive workplace culture. I can help you make better choices. I can help you exhibit more productive behaviors, but I'm not going to make you do anything. Um, that's not the business that I'm in. So if I get even a, a sense, a marginal sense, that that may be the kind of situation somebody wants to pull me into, um, I, I opt out. Right. You know, you said about dragging cats on the bed. I just thought about a phrase that we use in politics called herding cats, right? Mm -hmm. That's yeah. That basically <laughs> describes a lot of the stuff that we've had to do. Um, yep. So I guess there was another question. No, let me, let me get into the book a little bit. Define mm -hmm. the art of waymaking. <laughs> the art of waymaking. So a waymaker is anyone with a heart to lead who opens doors, removes barriers, and ushers people through to greater levels of contribution. That is how I define it, which is different from a cheerleader, which is different from an ally, right, which is different from a mentor. Um, all those things may be good things, but waymakers to me are active participants in driving equitable outcomes. They recognize there's a problem or inequities. They understand that they will not resolve on their own. They take responsibility for the role they can and should play in creating more equitable outcomes, and they do that they play that role courageously, understanding that there will be resistance, understanding, right, that some people will be unhappy, um, but they forge ahead anyway, right, Th through that fire and shielding other people as they go. Um, so that's what waymaking is to me, active participation, right, in, in driving more equitable outcomes. So in the first chapter of the book, um, which I, I love the... Uh, title power and privilege sources of stagnancy right mm -hmm. you give a historical analysis albeit brief of american society up to this point and, and i heard you gotta laugh at that but it, it, it you you very you you're very very deliberate in saying i'm not trying to be a historian i'm not trying to be a right. politician 
but right. you do give a a pretty good analysis, even though it was a short story. It's a, it's a good one. Why Thank why you. is why <laughs> is that important for the reader to understand? And why do you think it is the hardest for most Americans to comprehend? Yeah, I think it's important that we understand, you know, that getting that moving on, that creating the kind of society and workplace we say we want is not as easy as, hey, this is what we want. Let's go and do it. You know, I told everybody to do it. Why aren't they doing it? Like, it's just, it's not that surface. And while some of this is about, is about declarations and choices and behaviors and accountability, a lot of it is, some of it, we have to acknowledge that, again, these issues have very deep roots and sweeping branches. And so, you know, just kind of giving a tree a haircut <laughs> is not going to necessarily, right, get you over that hump. That tree has such deep roots that it will bear that fruit again. Even if you pull it down, it will bear the fruit again. So we have to address some of the things that are really deep seated. And we have to understand that some of this fruit we're dealing with is from that tree, right? Is, is from that tree and people are still dealing with it today. Um, and so appreciating that historical view, I believe is really important. Otherwise we'll give it short shrift. We'll think it's too simple or easy to fix. Um, we won't you know, appreciate the ways people are still being harmed by it. I think it's hard for some Americans to accept that because that wasn't me. I wasn't there. I didn't do it. And we're a very protective, defensive, you know, um, society, especially right now. If somebody tells a truth that we feel it puts our belief system at risk, our values at risk, our idea of who we are at risk, we're going to erect a wall because that makes us feel unsafe, right? It makes us feel unsafe. And I think that's where people shut down or they kind of come back with their own version of the truth. And we just get into this, this war of ideas versus backing up and saying, what do we want our society to be? What do we want it to be? And what can we do together to get there? So we're more right now about preservationism and protection than we are about progress, right? Um, and, it, and it's a problem because it's, it's much harder to uproot something than it is to, to plant it. And so as a follow-up to that, um, you paraphrase Maya Angelou mm -hmm. uh, by saying norms are a thing. Yeah. So in a society that values traditions, that value customs, right? How much mm -hmm. of a conscience effort does the power core need to make in order for that change to happen? Extraordinarily conscious. It's, I believe a lot of people in the power core and for people who might be listening, you know, I talk about the power core as a concept in the book, which is to say any entity has people in power. They're in the center, in the center. It's all the things we need to have you know, a healthy life and a, and a productive life and a successful life. And in the workplace, that's, you know, insight, access and opportunity. So the people in power hold those things. And the only way we really get to equity is if people share that power, because in the workplace, you can't scratch your way to, you know, to the power core 
you can't buy your way to the power core. That's not how any of that works. The power has to be has to be shared. So that has to be, uh, first of all, an understanding of how that power operates in your given construct and a recognition that it is operating, right? That it is in play. And two, realizing, hey, I'm the one who has it. If I'm the one who has to share it, how do I do that? What does sharing it look like, you know, day to day, not some kind of annual, you know, exercise I go through, but in my everyday interactions with people, how can I share more insight with them about the business or the company? How can I provide access to power networks and knowledge centers? How can I create more opportunity by putting people on important projects or, um, you know, giving them great client work, et cetera. Those are all choices that we make every day. And when we make them without thinking, we give all of that good stuff to the people who are sitting right beside us. And usually the people sitting right beside us are the people who remind us of ourselves because that's what's comfortable for us. So we have to make those unconscious choices, conscious choices. And that requires you know, a state of mindfulness that some of us just don't move in every day. And that the term power core, because also in the book, you talk about how the power core looks, right? Because mm-hmm. yeah. you said mostly it's you kind of did it like, a, well, I won't say Dante. I shouldn't say Dante's Inferno, but it's like the circles, <laughs> right? Where it's like yeah. you've got you've got white men are the closest to the core than any other group. Then In white America. women, it's right, America, yeah. right? And mm-hmm. then and then white women, and then black men, and then black men, men. of color, yeah. yeah, and then women of color, yes, yeah. and and yeah, yeah. So. I um I think that's interesting. Um because the dynamics I see, right, is that you know, there was something that just came out that said that women make up about 25% of the Fortune 500 CEOs now. So I I I I would think that it was kind of inversed, right? That it's it's that it's it's uh white women then it's women of color and then men of color why why do i have that wrong in that sense well it's it's women who make up 25 percent of fortune 500 ceos not black and brown women Ah. that's mostly white women okay all right (laughs) yeah (laughs) so what 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 where are we as far as black women or women of color concerned as far as in that makeup are we we about 10%, 5%, 10%, 5%, where are we in that group? Well, there are three, I believe, right now. There, Well, there are two um, in the Fortune 500, Black women in the Fortune 500. There okay. are a couple of other women of color, I believe. Um, I'm not looking at the data right now. But, you know, essentially what I used, kind of the the research that I used to help explain that my power core concept holds is just it, it's the relationship between who's coming into the workforce at entry level and basically who's making it to the top of the house right so white men are coming in at about 35 percent, but they're about 62 percent, you know at the top of the house so they're the only group that expands as they grow in their career every other group actually gets smaller as you go higher up the food chain, if you will. And that is most true. That is most pronounced for women of color. Gotcha. 
okay. was the biggest drop off for that group. Yeah. Okay. Um, there's a couple of things I want to get to because our time is just about up, but mm -hmm. um, I wanted you to explain the 2060 20 theory, mm -hmm. if you would. And then there was, uh, you, you noted that you created a unique survey with questions based on microaggressions. So explain the 2060-20 theory and then give some examples of the questions that you, or statements even that you posted mm -hmm. in your evaluation to determine uh, if there was a need for DEI work. Yeah, so um, the 2060-20 is, you know, kind of borrowed from, uh, from other, you know, principles and concepts that have been used in the past, but it's essentially anytime you're going through any major change, you're going to have 20 people who are leading the change, 20 people, 20% 20 of the people who are resisting the change, and usually the majority of the people are sitting on the fence, <laughs> right? So you'll have folks saying, let's go, let's get after it. You'll have folks saying, you know, leave me alone, don't touch my stuff. And then a whole bunch of people who are just benign, if you will, they are they are fence sitting. They may not know if they have a role to play in the change. Um, they're waiting and seeing, right? All of those ways that we describe people who are sitting on the fence. And so what I share with companies, especially lately when they say, how do I get the people in my company who are resistant? How do I get them to change their minds? And I say, you may not be able to because some of them fundamentally do not believe in equity. They don't believe in it. And you're not going to convince them to believe in it if they don't believe in it. The better way to approach it is to amplify those leaders, right, and inspire and equip those laggers. Some of the reasons why people don't get off the fence is because, you know, they, they don't know what to do or they're afraid to do it. So if you can help them know what to do and encourage them to do it, give them that encouragement, then you can get those fence setters off the fence, combining, you know, with the leading group and, and create your own tipping point. At which point the 20%-ish who are fixed will probably start to be uncomfortable, right? And they'll either change the way they're showing up or they'll opt out. And either of those scenarios is a good scenario. So that's kind of the 20-60-20. On the, um, the piece about the engagement or in experience survey, I talk in the book about the difference between engagement surveys and experience surveys. And I'm a big believer in really deeply understanding what people inside your corporate culture are experiencing day to day. And the reason I designed mine, we designed ours through the lens of marginalized people is because that's really where the most acute experiences are happening. When you design a survey through a majority lens, you're not even asking questions about the things that are really causing the deep seated right pain um, inside a corporation. So I designed it through the lens of inclusion and equity. Some of the statements that people either, you know, disagree, strongly disagree, agree, or strongly agree with are things like, um, I, I don't get feedback on my performance until it becomes a barrier to advancement. That's one example, right? Mm -hmm. Another is I struggle to get through the day because I'm often on guard. That's another example of a statement, right? Or um, I'm not sure anyone with influence over my career knows who I am or what I do. 
Right. So those are some examples of the kinds of statements that are in there, because I know those are the experiences that black and brown and other people who exist on dimensions of difference are having inside workplaces every day. And these are some of the experiences that prevent them from fulfilling their potential. All right. Well, my time is up. Uh, <laughs> uh, so for people who want to get into this further, uh, one, how can they get the book, The Waymakers? And two, uh, how can they get in touch with you directly? Yeah, so they can find me at tarajfrank.com, T-A-R-A-J-A-Y-E-F-R-A-N-K.com. Um, and you can get in touch with me there through a contact form. I also am on LinkedIn and really active on LinkedIn, as I know you know, and people can get the book anywhere online that books are sold. So Barnes and Noble, Amazon, um, Goodread, I mean, almost anywhere you can buy a book. We also have not only the the hard cover, but also Audible. Um, it's on Audible and Apple and on e-reader as well. All right. Well, Tara J. Frank. I appreciate you coming on. Um, Thank you. And, Thanks for uh, having me, Eric. Yeah, and it's uh, uh, I wish you much success. Uh, Thank you. You're you're not the first person that does this work that I've interviewed, um, mm-hmm. but I, I I there's a certain quality about your your uh, work that makes you unique and. I relate to it from a political standpoint because mm-hmm. when I was thinking 20, 60, 20, I'm thinking 20 hardcore, 20 yeah, yeah. opposition, 60 swing <laughs> you voters. It. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So it's Thanks. like, it's like the, the, the language that you use, I can relate to it because a lot of it, even though you claim you're not political, I think you're really, <laughs> really, really real politician at heart. But anyway, I don't mean that as... <laughs> anything but i really appreciate the work that you're doing and i thank you for coming on the podcast thank you so much it was great to be with you i appreciate it yes ma'am all right guys and we'll catch y'all on the other side all right and we are back So, uh, we're moving along uh, in this super show that we've got. Um, I I really, really want to thank Ms. Frank for coming on. Uh, uh, She is in high demand. And so, if you have a corporation, um, you know, and you kind of want to understand what... uh, what you need to do to improve the culture, I would suggest getting the book first, right? Um, I would, because I think you need to be prepared for what this sister is going to bring to to your workplace. And also, you know, it, it's a guide. So after she leaves, you know, because she can't stay forever, Right. She'll do her seminars or uh, consulting, you know, for a minute. And then you got to carry the work on yourself. Uh, 
that book will be a good guide. So the book is called The Waymakers. I got mine on Amazon. Uh, you, but you can go anywhere and get it. Um, and, uh, you know, if you want to reach her, you know, she gave you the website, uh, to do that. And, uh, you know, her and, and other folks that I've talked to, you know, I take advantage of it. If you're serious about changing dynamics, you need to reach out to these, brothers and sisters who are doing this kind of work um, because they're doing it because they have a commitment to it. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's just the bottom line, you know, and they, a lot of them are doing it based on experiences that they personally went through, um, you know, and, and really just don't want people to go through it again. Uh, you know, it's almost, it's almost like parenting, right? You, you made mistakes in your life, so you don't want your children to make the same mistakes. Well, that's basically what these consultants are doing. So to address the concern that she brought out, if you're thinking about cutting the budget now, you know, cause the summer of 2020 is past, don't do it. Do not cut that budget. If anything, you need to double down and commit to that. Because, you know, if you're about retaining employees, then you want to create a culture where employees feel valued, right? All right, that's my PSA for that. Anyway, <laughs> let me let me get on to the next guest. Uh, she is known as uh, a uh, legal expert and... Uh, I like legal experts, of course. Um, you know, everybody used to accuse me of being a lawyer. I am not a lawyer. Did not attend law school. Uh, just was fortunate to be in a position where I created work for lawyers by passing legislation and stuff or trying to kill it, even. Um, but it's it's always good to have legal experts come on a show that's political in nature um, to kind of give some context about what's going on. Um, so let me introduce Melba Pearson. Melba Pearson is an attorney specializing in civil rights and criminal law with an emphasis on policy. She is the Director of Prosecution Projects at the Gordon Institute for Public Policy and Co-Manager for the Prosecutorial Performance Indicators, PPI project, based at Florida International University. The PPI's aim to bring more transparency, equity, and racial justice in the criminal justice system. Ms. Pearson also serves as adjunct faculty in the Department of Criminology and Criminal Justice. She has a consulting practice through her firm, MVP Law, which includes assessments of police departments and creating community engagement strategies around criminal justice, civil rights issues. Before joining FIU, Ms. Pearson spent three years as deputy director of the ACLU of Florida, where she worked to change police practices expand voting rights, and reform the criminal justice system. 
Previously, Ms. Pearson was an assistant state attorney in Miami-Dade County for 16 years, culminating as assistant chief in the career criminal robbery unit, supervising junior attorneys while prosecuting homicides. She serves as vice chair of the American Bar Association Criminal Justice Section, co-chair of the Prosecution Function Committee, president of the National Black Prosecutors Association Foundation, and vice chair of the Florida Justice Center. Ms. Pearson regularly provides legal analysis for Court TV, Law and Crime, local networks, and through op-eds that have been published in the Miami Herald, Washington Post, and other national outlets. She is the editor-slash-author of the book, Can They Do That? Understanding Prosecutorial Discretion. Lastly, she hosts a web show, Hashtag Mondays with Melba, and a podcast as the Resident Legal Diva. In 2020, Ms. Pearson was the progressive candidate for Miami-Dade State's Attorney, garnering a strong showing across party lines. She lives in Miami Beach with her husband, Bill. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my distinct honor and privilege to have as a guest on this podcast, the resident legal diva, Melba Pearson. All right, Attorney Pearson, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on. How are you doing? I am doing fine. I am honored that you uh, uh, requested to be on. Uh, you, you heard my call and you heard my plea and you decided to share some of your knowledge with me and the listeners. So I appreciate that. My uh, pleasure. So um, let's get into some of the stuff that's been happening lately. There's been three incidents I want to really get your uh feedback on one is the uh, the Keenan Anderson death in LA um, the Tyree Nichols uh, death in Memphis and uh, you uh, I, I won't say unique but an interesting one in Atlanta with Manuel Tehran and mm-hmm. and we'll get into that but let's let's first talk about Keenan Anderson uh, he was a young man who got tased to death basically by the Los Angeles Police Department. What it what is your take on that situation? Um well this is all of them are a very tragic situation. So let's start off with that. My heart definitely goes out to the families and the communities that are impacted by this. Because again, you think about the actual victim themselves and the people they left behind, but we also have to understand that when we see that level of police violence, it affects all of us. It affects communities in terms of they're now hesitant to call the police because they're afraid that if they're, you know, all they want to do is get assistance, but is that going to be met with some kind of brutality? Or are they going to, in terms of calling the police, as we've seen in the sort of the backlash after Atiana Jefferson was murdered in her own home, you know, the reality was the neighbor called the police and then felt really badly thinking, well, maybe if I had talked to her directly, she would still be here with us today. So there's a lot of impact that I definitely want to center when we talk about you know, police violence. And so, you know, of course, that case takes on a, a, an initial, another layer uh, on top of the initial horrors of, of him being uh, 
killed in this way because of his uh, familial relationship to uh, the the creator of Black Lives Matter. So you just think about the fact that here's somebody who is so dialed in and leading a movement, and she is not immune from you know losing a family member, losing a loved one to this type of violence. So. At the end of the day, when it comes to these types of cases, number one, we've got to see the body cam footage um, so that we can get a better understanding of what occurred in any of these incidences. Secondly, um, we also have to see if the body cam was even turned on. Because as we've unfortunately noticed uh, across the country in some of these incidences, you'll see the officers start to motion to each other. So they're not orally saying anything that could be recorded on the uh, body cam or they'll turn their camera off while they're turning in a different direction um, and try to default to officers who may not be required to wear body cam. So for instance, if a detective is not required to wear body cam, but a regular road officer is, they may retreat and let the folks who don't have a body worn camera engage more in the incident because of the fact that they're worried about creating evidence. So we have to really see all of the evidence that's available to understand what's happening um, and also learn more about the officers involved. As we saw in the Derek Chauvin case, you know, many of these officers have a history of civilian complaints where people have gone to internal affairs and made a complaint or there's a civilian review board and that officer's name came up frequently. So that's going to be something I'm interested in seeing as well, whether or not the officers that were involved in these incidences uh, had a history of uh, being discourteous to the community or using excessive force and were they disciplined? What came from that? So that's those are some of the things that I'm looking at in these cases. Right. Because in, in a situation with uh, Mr. Anderson, uh, it's it's one of those where they've released certain portions of the body cam footage to the public. And but what you have what I have seen uh, and I don't know if you, you knew this about me before uh, agreeing to come on, but I, I'm certified law enforcement as well as. Mm -hmm being a former legislator and a former director of policy for the ACLU. So I kind of look at, uh, in a very, very interesting lens. And what I, what I noticed was a young man who obviously was having a panic attack. Mm -hmm. um, he wasn't flailing at the officers. He wasn't being belligerent with the officers. He was resisting because he was panicking. Right. Right. And so from what I saw, they tased him multiple times when he was on the ground. And one of the concerns I have, and that's why I wanted to kind of pick a legal brain on it, is that, you know, they 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 teach us about use of force and how we have to we all this paperwork we got to fill out and all the graduated steps we have to get to to get to certain levels of force. When I see somebody that's under control of an officer, my training and my interpretation of my training, let me put it that way, is that at that point, it's time to put on handcuffs and let's transport. It's not repeated tasing. So basically, Correct. if a tase lasts about five seconds. So if he got tased five times, and that's basically 25 seconds worth of tasing that he's gone through. 
even though they teach you that it's a minimal minimal risk, it all depends on where you get tased as to mm-hmm. how that risk uh, uh, elevates. So, you and know, if you have health issues, you exactly. know, if you have you know, a a weak heart or something like that, there's no way necessarily for the officer to know that in advance. So again, you know, you use, you know, people forget that even though taser is a less form of deadly force, it still can be deadly force depending on the, the health state of the person that's involved or if they have other substances in their system. So, you know, I, I definitely agree with your point around you know, was it really necessary to tase him five times in a row, right? Like, would one uh, burst from the taser have been sufficient? What, or was a taser even needed at all? Because, again, if he is in a position where he is in the custody of the police officers, again, I always like to parallel back to Derek Chauvin because I think that is the most recent trial in our memory where all of these issues were really explored and uncovered and really used to educate folks on how these trials can be put together successfully. But, you know, one of the key aspects that came about was like, wait a minute, you know, he was laying on the ground, he was in this position, there was no way for him to be able to fight back, run or anything like that. Why did you keep him for, you know, eight minutes in that position when your training told you distinctly that you do it for as limited amount of period to get the person under control? And then, you know, like you said, handcuffs and transport, as opposed to, you know, have him in on the ground for eight minutes. There was no need for that. And the jury saw that. So, again, in now looking at our case in L.A., the question is, you know, this young man being on the ground, you know, being tased. If he wasn't offering any resistance, then the tasing should have stopped. And so there is a possibility that we'll, we can see a prosecution coming from that, again, depending on the totality of the evidence. Because, you know, again, we get portions of the body cam video, but are there other forms of evidence that can be used in this case? Is there, are there, for instance, like we saw in Derek Chauvin, there were multiple angles of surveillance cameras in addition to the body-worn cameras. You had witnesses that were able to testify that, okay, this is what he was doing, and we were, you know, intervening and saying, listen, I'm EMT, this person can't breathe, he clearly is struggling, those types of things. So I definitely want to see all of the evidence before, you know, making a judgment, but definitely there's a lot of red flags at this juncture. Right. And and just, uh, you know, the family is suing, from what I understand, for $50 million, and we'll see how that, that goes. Now, the Tyree Nichols is interesting because this was a traffic stop and multiple officers showed up and you know and I and I have not seen the footage of this all I know is that he got killed for a routine traffic stop and there were all of the officers that have been suspended for this were black officers and and he was black. So this is kind of a unique situation because normally we when we when we've been dealing with these cases, especially ones that have gotten national news, it's usually uh, a white officer and a person of color. So what what's your take on it? 
that, and I guess you could say the same thing happened with Freddie Gray with Baltimore because the majority of those officers were black too. But what is what is your take on black officers using the same kind of tactics or or having the same kind of misuse of force as compared to white officers? What what has your experience shown you on that? Yeah, so that that is an interesting sort of dynamic when you have you know a black person in a position of power and how they use that power, right? So as someone who was a former prosecutor, um, sometimes you'd see, unfortunately, fellow black prosecutors be harsher than their white counterparts for a number of reasons, right? Number one, you don't want to be labeled or ostracized as being, oh, you're just soft on your own kind and that sort of thing. You don't want to harm your career aspirations by seeming to be not part of the team and, and not uh, you know, be supportive of what policing or what prosecution, whatever the case may be, is about. So there's that aspect. And then there's also maybe an aspect of shame of being like, you know, you're a black person and, you know, now I have to stop you or now I have to prosecute you, whatever the case may be. You're embarrassing us. You're embarrassing our race. So those are some of the dynamics that might be at play. Um, Additionally, you have the issue of, you know, basically you you bleed blue, right? That That is often the phrase you hear that, you know, we may be black, we may be white, but at the end of the day, we bleed blue. So there is this feeling of community and this feeling that we have to protect each other and support each other. And again, that may prevent or intimidate certain officers into not wanting to speak out or not wanting to de-escalate situations in a way that would be uh, helpful to everyone. So, you know, I I don't think we should be shocked when we see uh, officers of color using excessive force, because again, it's about the mentality. It's about training. It's about who was your uh, field training officer. And, you know, kind of like, I I know folks probably saw the movie Training Day, right? Mm -hmm. And that would be an example of a very bad field training officer, right? So, but granted we're using Hollywood as an example, But at the same token, in real life, officers learn from those who are supervising them. And you get one set of training. I know you can attest to this. You get one set of training at the academy. But once you get on the street, you'll often hear from your sergeant, from your supervisors, okay, that's what you learn in the academy, but this is how we handle things on the street. So, you know, I don't think we should be as surprised. And again, even if you look back into, you know, Sadly, slavery times, right? You know, often you'd see situations where uh, the white overseer would give a black person power over other enslaved people, and they wielded that power in a negative way because they thought that that proximity to whiteness was going to protect them, protect their family. And so, you know, we can see throughout history that there are these tension points when it comes to, you know, Black folks that are in a position of power and how they use it. So, you know, but of course, I think about the old phrase that you're never going to uh, dismantle the master's house by using the master's tools, right? So you're going to have to think about different ways of approaching these issues, ensuring that there's training, ensuring that there's access and destigmatization around seeking mental health 
treatment and counseling because that anger, that shame or feeling overwhelmed, all of that contributes to the use of excessive force. Right. And I'm glad you pointed that out. Um, Cause that's, that's something that I've, I, I, I advocate and believe in. And um, uh, I've basically said that mental health is, is a major, major component. And a lot of the stuff that we're dealing with uh, not just with the police, but, just society in general right now, politics in general right now. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's that, but I, I, I just, I think officers should get mental evaluations every three, four months. That's just me. I think, you know, they, they should at the minimum, you know, every four months, but at the, you know, every, every quarter officers need to go in and get, and get evaluated because especially if they're really, really, you know, on the street, because you see a lot, the, the officers that responded to the shooting in Monterey park, the chief basically cut the press conference off. Cause he said, I've got to go talk to these young guys, you know, who this is the first time they've ever seen something that horrific. Right. So, right. you know, mm-hmm. that kind of stress, you know that you know it'll be interesting to monitor those officers right from this point forward but anyway um the last one i want to get to since we talked about training uh the situation in atlanta with manuel Tehran, right i don't know how you how familiar you are with that situation but manuel Tehran, they want to build in response to what happened in 2020 atlanta has made a decision that they want to build the state-of-the-art training facility and they are putting it in a place that environmentalists want to protect, right? It's a right. It's, it's like a watershed kind of spot. And it used to be a prison farm long, long time ago in the 20th century. Anyway, at the early 1900s. But anyway, so officers were in the process of removing protesters from the spot, which I think they have done prior to this particular incident. And somehow a state trooper was shot and they say that Mr. Tehran was the guy who pulled the trigger and they say that they have ballistic evidence and all that. But needless to say, they took Mr. Tehran out at the spot where it happened. It was several officers fired on him. So this past weekend, as we were recording this, this past weekend, uh, some of Mr. Tehran's fellow protesters uh, decided that they wanted to have a protest downtown Atlanta. Police cars were burned, cars were overturned, property was damaged. You know, it was not a good Saturday night in Atlanta, right? So in a situation like that, right, because we kind of ran into that situation with Mike Brown and Ferguson, right? It was like it, it, in Ferguson, the initial image is seeing this young man laying on the street for literally hours, right? Yep. And the community's outraged. You've got the community and the police clashing and all that. And then when we get to the trial situation, uh, and even more recent with Rashard Brooks in Atlanta, right? When we get to the trial situation, you look at what a reasonable person would say, right? What a reasonable mm-hmm. officer would how respond. Um, you get a different outcome than the outrage that took place, right? The officers get exonerated, basically. So 
I'm I'm looking at this Tehran situation as one of those cases where it's like people are upset, especially those folks that are against the facility being built in that particular area. But, you know, the question becomes, well, who shot that officer, right? And if it wasn't Tehran, who and what what without, you know, I know you haven't looked at all the facts of the case, but but what's kind of your initial thought process based on what I've told you? Yeah, so initially what I would say is, again, this is one of those situations where you want to know all of the evidence, right? So what led the officers to believe that this was the person that fired upon them? Was he, you know, literally holding a gun and standing in front of them? That That's one scenario, right? And if that's the case, then the officers have are reasonable in their concern for their life and safety because this is someone who just, you know, shot at them. They saw, you know, a fellow officer drop to the ground, you know, and then they see this person with the smoking gun. They feel that they need to act to be able to preserve life because they don't know who else that this person is intending on shooting. Now, if it's a scenario where shots came from that general direction and they grabbed the first person they saw, and then it spiraled out of control from there, that's a separate issue. And that again is problematic because what did the officers know? What did they witness? What did they see that led them to this conclusion? You can't just have, you know, this is not a situation where you, you know, you can just have an execution squad on the street, right? Like you shot one of our own, so now we shoot you. No, we have, we're a country of laws and we have a judicial process. And, you know, the officer is a victim, the trooper, excuse me, is a victim, clearly. The question is, can we prove beyond a reasonable doubt who did it? And what was the probable cause that the officers had at the time to make an arrest and say that this is the person that did it? Absent all of those facts, it's, it's kind of hard to make a determination. If it does come out, like, for instance, in the Michael Brown case, that case wasn't even indicted. The, you know, basically it was brought to the grand jury and the grand jury was like, we, we don't see enough here to be able to sustain charges against the officer. Um, you know, same thing in Richard Brooks, like we got a little further down the line, but the case ended up being dropped against the officers, again, because of looking at the totality of the circumstances, you know, the officers do have a right to defend themselves if they are presented with deadly force. But the question is, was it presented in this in this instance? And how did it all pan out? And I'm definitely very interested to see, you know, what other evidence they have. Um, but if it's a situation where it's, you know, smoking gun type scenario, the first situation I spoke of, then, of course, the officers will be cleared in for many liability in that shooting. Right. So we haven't seen any body cam footage on that one, nor have they even released the name of the officer, which is highly unusual in, in situations like that. Normally, you know, they, they, they at least let the press know who the officer is but they've kept all that information quiet. So, all right. So that took up most of our time, but I do want to try to touch on a couple <laughs> other things real quick. Um, the second Lieutenant, uh, Karen Nazario, uh, was only awarded $3,685 in his $1 million lawsuit in Virginia concerning the traffic stop that happened, uh, in December of 2020. What, what what would make a jury only give somebody three thousand some dollars, less than four thousand uh, dollars, 
uh, for a situation like that? Yeah, so this is one of those really, oof, that, that, that's an ouch, right? <laughs> because he's asking for a million dollars, he gets 3,000. You see the video and it is very just like, painful because he's like you know he's got both of his hands out of the window he's like listen you know can we just talk about this and you know the officers are screaming at him and cursing at him so it's definitely very um painful video to watch but at the same token that verdict says to me and that amount says to me that the jury felt that he was somehow responsible for what happened that he should have complied in some other way um again I, I'm I'm giving my opinion without seeing having the benefit of seeing everything that the jury saw, um, and that's often what happens with you know folks that do legal analysis, whatever. There may be aspects to the trial that we don't get to see or or just not publicly released. And if you're not in the courtroom, you'll never know. But you know, again, it sounds to me that they felt that he could have de-escalated the situation by coming out, um, and then in because basically he was tased while sitting inside of his car and he refused to comply with the officer's demands to come out of the car. We understand why, because he stated very clearly, like, listen, I'm, you know, y'all are scaring me right now. Um, you know, I don't feel that I've done anything wrong. I am complying as in, I have my hands out of the window. I am presenting no violence to you. But again, the argument was you didn't follow a lawful order by the police department. So you know, that's why I always advise people if they're in these types of situations, listen, comply on the spot and at least you're alive to be able to fight it out with IA later on down the line, right? You can file a complaint, you can file a lawsuit, but if you're not with us, we're relying on your family and any witnesses to tell the story. And if, you know, the witnesses aren't reliable or it wasn't a situation where there were witnesses present or there's no surveillance camera, we may never actually know what happened to you. So, you know, I, that's, yeah, because that, yeah, yeah, that was, that was a stop. The way they treated that stop was like he had a warrant out. Right. Uh, right. And, you know, that, that whole, that whole thing. I mean, I literally had just got out of training when that incident happened. And so, uh, you know, that was just, we were like going, well, if he didn't have a warrant, why did you make a stop like that? You know what I'm saying? Where the officer is far away, you call back up. If it's a traffic stop, it's a traffic stop. You couldn't see the the car tag, then you pull him over and ask, you know, where's the car tag? But anyway, right. um, I thought less than $4,000 for that is just crazy. I, I The lawyer, his, his lawyer, to his credit, uh, basically said he thinks the jury just made a mistake. And so he's going to appeal it and we'll see what happens. So real quick, since we we're short on time, boy, a half hour goes quick when you're having fun. Right. right. Um, <laughs> so I want to get into something that's not necessarily police related. Right. So a couple of things, Alec Baldwin, right. He, he is being charged with involuntary manslaughter for the shooting on his set. Uh, uh, I forget what, position the lady had in in the production but just say production crew um he claims that he didn't know the gun was loaded um mm -hmm. the armor he says he didn't even pull the trigger right so him and the person that's called the armorer who's responsible for making sure there's no live ammunition in guns uh have been charged with involuntary manslaughter but the kicker 
is that the director got shot too. And not only is the film going to continue to be made with Mr. Baldwin still in the movie, but the director is back on set directing the film. What? So in that situation, is Mr. Baldwin, because he was the producer, uh, is he really responsible for that? Should he really be charged with that or, should he have something like a criminal negligence charge or something less? Yeah, yeah. This this is a messy, 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 messy one. Um, I firmly believe that based on the evidence that's publicly available, unless the prosecutor has something else in her bag of evidence that we are not aware of, I don't see how he can be found guilty of involuntary manslaughter. The reality is the armor, which was named is Hannah Gutierrez Smith. She was the one who, first of all, this was her first big gig. This is her first big movie as an armorer. So that was problem number one in terms of she needed probably more supervision and more assistance to be able to make sure she was doing things correctly. But the reality is on a movie set, you're not supposed to have any live ammunition, period. So let's start with that. And then the second part is the armor is the one who loads the weapon and is the one that is supposed to because you can't, when you look at a live you know, round of, of ammunition and a blank, visually they can appear to be the same. The way you know the difference is by shaking it and you have to do that with each and every round to ensure that it is a blank, a dummy round as opposed to actual live ammunition. That job falls to the armor, not Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin is not a firearms expert by any stretch of the imagination. Even more so, he's actually very anti-firearm as a general premise. He's very critical of the NRA, and you know he's been very vocal about his views on gun control. So I don't see someone like him being able to be like, oh wait, let me go out and double check each and every round to make sure that you know they're they're all blanks. Number one, that's not his responsibility. That's why the studio has hired an armor. That's their job. Now, not only did the armorer have a responsibility, she passed the gun to the assistant director, who was also charged. He took a plea immediately. He, too, passed the gun to Alec Baldwin and assured him that this was a cold gun, that there were no live rounds, and he was fine to be able to proceed with the rehearsal and then film the scene. So again, he's relying, and he being Alec Baldwin, is relying on the experts to tell him that he's good to go. And secondly, he had no reason based on what we know to believe that there'd even be live ammunition in that area. Now, that does not mean that civilly he cannot be held responsible because remember criminal means you can go to prison for it. Civil means you pay out the money for it, right? He could be in trouble with regards to negligent supervision because of the fact that we later learned that some of the crew were bringing their personal guns and ammunition to the set and in between takes were going off in some area of the set and used in doing target practice. Again, completely inappropriate. Did Alec Baldwin know? Did the supervisors he hired on set or because, because he was part of this production, did they know? If so, did they make some effort to try and stop it? That is all on the civil side, which in my opinion, you know, 
he will face liability. He already settled with the estate and the family of the 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 member of the crew that was killed. I want to say she was um, one of the producers or something. She was very high up in the production. And I believe her husband is now going to continue on in her place as, you know, directing or producing uh, the, the movie. So one settlement has already occurred. Uh, you know, we have the other member of the crew that is able to go back to work. And I'm sure there's some financial settlement there as well. And that's where his liability should stay is, is paying out. But for physically like not doing the right thing that would lie with the armor and the assistant director. All right. And then one final question. Um, former president got fined a million dollars, uh, for filing a frivolous lawsuit against Hillary Clinton and a bunch of other folks. What does that fine mean? When, because everybody's saying it's rare to have somebody rule against your case, throw a case, and then come right back and say, you know what, I'm going a, I'm to a, I'm a tack on a, a fine. Uh, is, is that meant to be discouraging to people filing frivolous lawsuits in general or just to that particular person? I think it's a matter of number one is sending a message broadly, like, listen, you know, there's some of you out here that think the election was rigged, the election was stolen, you know, you're challenging results that, that, that you know, basically make no sense, uh, as we saw with Carrie Lake in Arizona. So basically it's enough of wasting the court's time. So if you're thinking about filing a lawsuit on this topic, look deep before you leave. That's message one. But then secondly, it is also a direct message to the former president to say, listen, you're barking up the wrong tree here. You're not, you know, you don't have grounds. You know, you don't have grounds. Your attorneys are telling you that you don't have grounds. And as a result, that's why you end up with some less than reputable legal counsel because those who know the law and respect their reputation are not going to put their name to that lawsuit. They're not going to damage their ability to get future work. So this is another way of chastising the former president and being like, you can't just come here and file these ridiculous lawsuits and, and basically abuse the court system when there are all these other lawsuits out there that are actually valid and you're taking time away from that because we have to deal with your foolishness, basically right. is what the court was saying. All right. So obviously, like you said, we, we, we don't have enough time <laughs> in, in tapping all these issues. So how can people get in touch with you? Uh, I understand you have a podcast. Go ahead and give your uh, shout outs and uh, uh, just basically just kind of talk about how people can get in touch with you, where to listen to the podcast, all this stuff. Absolutely. So I host a show called Mondays with Melba. Um, it is live at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can watch it live on uh, Facebook. Just look for my name, Melba Pearson, and you don't, you know you don't have to have an account or anything like that. You can just hop on and watch it. You can also watch it live on YouTube on my channel, which is at Resident Legal Diva. 
And then you can also watch it live on LinkedIn. Same thing, Melba Pearson. Later in the week, it is a uploaded as a podcast. So wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, those are the ways you're able to listen to my show. Again, Resident Legal Diva, Mondays with Melba. And then, of course, if you uh, are on Instagram, I also upload it to my Instagram account as well, at resident underscore legal underscore diva. See, so basically the resident legal diva everywhere. So just put that in and check that out. And then you could also reach me via my website, which is www.melbapearsonesq.com. And you can check out the website to see past episodes of the uh, Mondays with Melba show, as well as other appearances that, that I've done on national media, talking about different cases. And you can also sign up to receive my newsletter to again, hear about different events. Cause I always like to make sure to give people uh, knowledge to be able to maneuver in this world, whether it be around legal issues, whether it be around voting issues, civil rights, or even financial issues. I bring on, much like you do, I bring on guests to talk about different current events and different key issues that people would be struggling with. So uh, check it out if you can, would appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, the resident legal diva, Melba Pearson. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate you. Thank you for having me. All right, guys, and we'll catch y'all on the other side. All right, and we are back. Here we go, folks. Home stretch. My final guest for this episode is a very distinguished uh, lady. Uh, she has been in the fight for social justice for a long, long time. Um, and uh, I'm really honored to uh, have her as a guest on this uh, super episode that we are having. So to close us out, I have Ellen Buckman. Ellen Buckman was appointed president of the Opportunity Agenda in August 2019 after having served as vice president for program strategy and impact for the organization. Ellen brings a breadth of knowledge, expertise, experience, and relationships having worked on as an organizer, advocate, and communicator among leaders at local, state, national, and international levels for more than 25 years. Ellen's focus is to bring strategies of collaboration and inclusion to any organization, project, or body of work that she is involved in, leading, or being a part of. She is an internationally known trainer, leader, and practitioner of organization and coalition building, campaign initiating and implementing, advocacy and training, in the intersection of organizing, advocating, and communicating for social justice. Her work is centered mainly on skill building and building systems towards social justice, such as field and organizing entities, organizational structures, and opportunities for uplifting equity in advocacy and organizing. Prior to joining the Opportunity Agenda in 2018, Ellen served as executive vice president for field and communications at the leadership conference on civil and human rights, where she worked for 15 years and piloted the organization's field and organizing program 
and developed and oversaw the vision for the integrated field communications and policy work at the center of the organization. Over the years, Ellen has led and put into place dozens of successful campaigns, spearheaded mobilization, training, and support to national, state, and local coalitions, and created innovative organizing and communications training models for advocacy around the country and at the international level. Her expertise and vision is in building campaign and organizational structures to build power, and she is trained in outreach, leadership development, organizing, and social work for change. Ellen divides her time between New York City and Tacoma Park, Maryland, outside of Washington, D.C., where her home, wife, and enthusiastic and exuberant puppy reside. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my distinct honor and privilege to bring as a guest on this podcast, Miss Ellen Buckman. All right. Ellen Buckman, how are you doing, ma'am? I'm doing fine on this Monday. How are you, Eric? I'm doing good. I am really honored to have you. I um been a subscriber, I guess, to the email and the newsletter um right before you took over. And so oh, wow. I've been been getting the email newsletter ever since. Um so I knew who you were and uh <laughs> I, I'm really glad that I had this venue where I could sit down and talk with you uh, about the organization, right? Because that's, that's the main reason why I want you on to kind of talk about the work that you do. So we're going to go ahead and get that started. Define the mission of the Opportunity Agenda. Well, thank you, Eric, for being a subscriber and a supporter Thank you for helping us get the word out about what we do and how we do it. And, you know, we do not take lightly that people like you um, with uh, fora like this uh, are really important to us and to our mission. So it starts with that. And thank you for that. So the opportunity agenda is, as you well know, a social justice communication lab that um considers itself focused on narrative and cultural strategies to broaden the public imagination so that it will overcome white supremacy. Now, Eric, when I say that to most people, they're like, that's a big thing, Ellen. How do you do that? And I say to them, it is, and that's why we do all that we can to focus folks on the big story that is out there and the culture that is surrounding it so that we can actually have a hope and a prayer to address it. Um, why, why is building the narrative the most important part of impacting social change? So for us, it is one of the main components toward justice. I would say that, uh, with all due respect, reframe your question, I don't think it's the most important part However, it is an it is an essential part. And I say that, Eric, because it is among the essential tools in the toolbox that those of us who are committed to stretching toward justice must use. And I say that because we can come up with and I know you're a policy and communications guy and I know you're a former legislator and I know you know what I'm about to say more most likely all of the messages and 
political and policy strategies that we want. But as the saying goes, Eric, culture and narrative will eat those strategies for breakfast if we're not careful. And when I say that to you, I think about a metaphor, <clears throat> if you will, that um, some of my colleagues invented to describe this further. And it really starts with what we all walk around with in our heads, the big stories that we have or the narratives that we have that inform how we think about things and how we perceive things. And oftentimes a human condition is to walk around with multiple stories that sometimes conflict with one another, but formulate the context for what we think and the perceptions that we have. And so if you liken that to the stars in the sky, those stories, shine brightly and sometimes they dim based on how we conceive of them. Now, when you knit them all together, they create the narrative in that galaxy and they are surrounded in that galaxy by culture. So what I'm trying to say to you, Eric, is the smaller message points maybe are the smaller stars, they shine, but even brighter than that are those connective tissues that come together in those big stories in those galaxies that outweigh those messages. An example, um, many years ago, um, when I was working for a different organization, <laughs> we were asked by President Obama's White House to help them formulate their message points around the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival DACA Executive Order. And this was a policy that I I still believe in to this day, Eric, that we believed in then, and we certainly believed in that president and said, of course, we will help you with this. So we did polling and we came up with messages to target audiences that they were trying to attract, mainly to be partisan about it, um, moderate Republicans, get them on their side, right? And when we did that, um, we came up with messages based on our polling um, that suggested that anybody that we could convince use Things like, through no fault of their own, these kids are here in this country, and, and dot, dot, dot. And when you think about that, Eric, that is true. They came with their parents or their guardians or whomever brought them to this country. But when you think about the message that we were sending, we were sending a message that had the unintended consequence of um, criminalizing their parents and leading a conversation unintentionally to think about the kids as um, having better morals than their own family members. And so to this day, I think about that as an example when I respond to the question that you just asked me. And I say, look, the big story that we want to see out there has to do with the humanization of all people who come to our country, whether as refugees or as undocumented people seeking a job and not the dehumanization piece. And it's through these big stories that we tell that should weave together the short-term messaging to uplift that as opposed to get in its way. So that's why going back to your question, I see the narrative work as so important to having successful short-term messaging strategies because it's really that work that changes the conversation and changes the viewpoints that people bring to those conversations, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Um, what is the importance of a cultural strategy and why do you think most social justice organizations don't implement one? 
Mm, good question. You know, I think more and more are starting to, which is, I think, the good news. But your question is 100% based in my experience, which is that it's it's taken a while for a lot of them to focus on this. And I'm not sure why other than capacity and awareness. And I was one of those people at one point in my early career. I didn't work on it either. It's important for the same reasons that I'm describing as, as to why narrative is important, but even to a greater degree in some respects, because cultural strategies are really about what surrounds us in everything that we do, whether it's the billboard that we see when we're driving in our car, whether it's the TV commercials or television shows that we see when we're flicking it through at night, or the actual shows and the content that they stitch together themselves. And so how individuals, individuals of color, underserved individuals, people who essentially are stereotyped, are represented in our popular culture is critical. At the Opportunity Agenda, we work really hard to draw attention to this. We have reports on this and what popular culture will often get wrong um, in what they're putting out there. There are shows, I'm not going to name any names, that don't talk about poverty at all or present poverty, for example, at all as a reality, but instead as a sensationalized aspect of surroundings in the conversations and in the television shows that they're that they're showing. And that's not doing any good for people who are facing poverty because their reality is often different. And then the other thing that I can't leave out here, I'm sure you're familiar with this, you're familiar with the opportunity agenda, is that we work on um, making sure that it isn't only the representation of people's experiences that are accurate, but actually how people are represented. Example, we have a report on our website, opportunityagenda.org, that um, essentially shows how black men and boys are represented by pop culture. And I know it's not gonna come as a surprise to you um, that our research tells the story of how black men and boys are often portrayed as only focused on sports or violence or their realities are about promoting the gangs that they are in. And it is far too often the case that in pop culture, these are the stories that get told. And it isn't only pop culture. I've talked to journalists that are covering in their stories what they're trying to you know, share around the facts that are swirling around us. And sometimes they will use language or, or, or desensitize the subject so that they are perpetuating stereotypes as opposed to challenging them. Why not talk about black boys and men as students or fathers or people who are facing challenges as opposed to promoting them as criminals, that kind of a thing. And so that's why having a cultural strategy to address these things, in addition to all of the incredibly important work to address short-term messaging, policy work and the like, is essential because as I started by saying, that culture will eat for breakfast those strategies if we're not careful. Yeah, and when you were talking about TV shows, I have to give you a confession real quick. Um, so I used to like Good Times as a show and growing sure. up in Chicago, my mom actually mm -hmm. taught at the real Cooley High School right across from Cabrini Green. So I could relate to it, right? Um, but the season when Thelma got married was when I was through with it because this was for, for those, most of the people listening to the show know where I'm going, but it was like Thelma had met a guy who was playing for the Chicago bears. 
He had just signed his big contract. He was like star player and mm-hmm. they're getting married. And somehow, some way he trips over JJ and, and busts his knee. And now he can't play football anymore. And I said, dude, not one of them can leave. Not one of the only one that could leave was James and he died. I mean, at that point it was like, it's time to take the show off the air. So I get it. You know, it's like when we talk about those kind of issues, we want to see, we, we, we want to deal with realism in a sense, but we also want to deal with there's some realism that people do get out of those situations. And I think it is very important to get that message across. I cannot agree with you more, Eric, and I'm glad you brought that up. And in fact, I'm a Chicago girl, so we could go down that rabbit hole, but we won't. Um, I was born there. <laughs> okay. um, but yeah, no, I, I I 100% agree. And then so not only has the example that you've given struck with struck a chord with me, it's an example of not only the sensationalization of an individual, but also the sensationalization of what they are contributing and they're snatching it right back. And so what's the message that that sends to viewers? Um, you know, we, we uh, implicit bias is alive and well in part because of what uh, in pop culture is surrounding us with. And so it's definitely for me an aspect of our work and certainly an, as- an aspect of, uh, it's in my DNA, but an aspect of my persona to really, really think about not only my through my work lens, but also what are the shows that I'm actually supporting with my, you know, little precious downtime, because I want to make sure that I'm supporting those shows that are getting it right. So to your point. So thank you for that. Yes, ma'am. Um, in dealing with poverty, you mm-hmm. advocate that these four values must be in play. Voice, community, opportunity, and security. In these mm-hmm. divisive times, how does your organization navigate through to unlock these values? Great question. So our research, whether it's research about economic justice or research about racial profiling or research about uh, immigrant rights, all of it suggests the following common through line, Eric, and that is that different starting points for the conversation must be used for different populations and groups. It is really important to recognize that, and we have a whole system that we use to segment audiences so that people get that not everyone is going to be 100% with us on the one end, so it's supporters, base members, et cetera, and on the other end, it's one to five. The fives are going to be people that just don't disagree, that don't agree, and so just like I am a five to somebody else, there are fives to what we're trying to promote as well. And as you said, especially in these challenging times, we have to remember that through line, right? And so how do we do that? Um, we use, first of all, the research to tell us, okay, what are those people that we're talking to care about? And oftentimes it's the case that Black folks and people of color are not only more familiar with systemic injustice, but they care about those as well. And it speaks volumes when election time rolls around and you see the numbers uh, reporting out that those groups are the groups that tend to go to the polls more frequently. Well, that's because they believe in what government can do for them to a greater degree and to the system change that it should be making. And so how do we talk about things like this? Basic values, 
basic values. We also find in that research, and you already said the values, Eric, that if we start with the with those values and we start with what we believe everyone should be able to achieve, and then we connect back to those systems and we do it in a way that's sensitive to the audiences that we're talking with, we're going to be more successful. To my earlier point, we're not always going to be successful. And if anything, this time we are in reminders of that, right? But I believe as an optimist and as someone who's been working on social and racial justice for my career, that little by little, we will be successful if we think about it this, this, um, in this straightforward of a way. So I guess this is like a follow-up question. Can these mm -hmm. values mitigate U.S. capitalism as we know it? Oh, great question. You know, it's hard to say. Your question um, makes me um, want to say yes, but it's a very long-term battle. Um, one of the reasons, Eric, why narrative is so hard to quantify is because, as you well know, the story takes a very long time to unfold. And I'll give you an example of how we know that. A few years back, we did a research report called Shifting the Narrative. It's on our website, doing an analysis of six case studies of narrative change to show how a 30 or 40 year period was needed for perceptions to change. So if you're thinking about capitalism, I am quite convinced that we would need to take a look at it over uh, doing research that, that uh, assesses a long period of time. One of the case studies um, that we did was on um, welfare and how the conversation about, remember Eric, welfare queens in the 80s? Right. Um, has changed to what it is now, which, but that language hasn't completely been eradicated. Uh, you know, that will never really happen, but it has shifted um, to become a conversation about, like it or not, the word entitlement programs and things that people rely on, which is a much more accurate depiction than welfare queens, right? And so again, going back to what I said before, using the values and the, and the humanization language um, to portray what we're trying to portray makes a difference. And when we did that research through that case study, we saw over a 30 or so year period that that change is documentable. It's not possible to see that in the moment we're in, which is hard for people like me because you know, I get tired of not having instant gratification in my work. <laughs> but um, it is definitely the case that um, this uh, use of values and how we talk and the consciousness around the language that we that we use matters. Another example from that um, from that project from shifting the narrative, racial profiling. Um, we have a similar study that that shows the tipping point that were documented mainly through your old employer's litigation, the ACLU's litigation around case after case, Black people driving and getting pulled over, and how the promotion of that and the conversation around driving while Black shifted the conversation. And now we have a much greater awareness of racial profiling, still, in, still numbers that are more inflated than any of us want to see, but it is much different. It's a much different conversation now. How do you convey a message of contribution when it comes to immigrants, when you have public officials aggressively outlawing the teaching of history of different cultures? 
Yeah, it's pretty depressing um, if you think about it. Um, you, you know, one of the things that we haven't yet figured out, and we're actually in the middle of doing research around this, is how disinformation and truth matter to the conversation that we're trying to have. Because one of the things that this period in which we find ourselves right now is telling us is that we need to understand that and we need a, a sense of how, whether I should say, and how we need to shift what we do. Now, having said that, the good news is, the good news is, is a plurality of people want history to be taught and want it to be truthful, right? They don't want uh, these folks that are promoting um, the, you know, whether it's, you know, the conversation um, about teaching in schools around slavery or the conversation about trans kids, whatever it is. And that's actually another case that has shifted dramatically for the better. Um, not where it needs to be, but shifted for the better. Anyway, the point is we have found that a majority of people across populations believe in truth. Um, they don't all believe in the justice that we believe in, but they believe in truth. And so the thing that we're really working on hard now, Eric, in doing is figuring out how do we make sure that we're promoting it? One of the things that the Opportunity Agenda always says in our training work and in our work with advocates and social and racial justice leaders is to not fall into the myth, the myth busting trapping um, that often happens when we're trying to refute what these people are trying to say. Because the other thing that our research shows us is that most people won't remember um, what you're saying as the truth, but instead they'll remember the myth that you're trying to bust, right? And so if our goal is to shift away from that, then we shouldn't just have a back and forth with folks, which is why we're really taking a hard look at that now. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's, it's interesting and it just real quick, you know, I'm thinking mm -hmm. about my political evolution. Mm -hmm. And, you know, back in 94, you know, I was making the case that we didn't need an LGBTQ conf uh, caucus in the Young mm -hmm. Democrats because the Democrats have always supported those issues. And now 30 years later, I look back on that and I was like, oh my God. Well, I, I had to learn that my evolution didn't equate to mass evolution, right? Just because my mindset <laughs> was at a certain place, the country wasn't there. And people were trying to tell me, Eric, yeah, well, you're okay. cool, but you, the rest of the folks ain't cool. That's why we need to have this, this group. And so, you know, I think that's part of the issue, too, that we have to be conscious about is that those of us who are conscious and, and have do our part to pull in other folks to understand that it's not easy for people to get to the mindset where we are. So that's why I appreciate the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. I'm glad you said that. And thanks for sharing your personal experience, Eric, because one of the things that I think most people learn from is vulnerability. And, and when they understand that there are other people who are thinking and really interrogating these things like they are, then they also understand that change in their viewpoint is okay. And that's another key piece of this, making sure that folks get that there's, there's a long-term effort that we all need to be committed to, to move from 1994 
to where we are now. I know you're going to remember this as soon as I say it, but when our president at that time, Clinton, was supportive of the Defense of Marriage Act, Mm -hmm. he had a lot of people following him. Mm -hmm. And now I just got to go to the signing of the Respect for Marriage Act a couple of weeks ago at the White House. And I'll say to you right now, never in my wildest dreams in 1994 would I have imagined being surrounded by thousands of people watching the president sign that into law, right? And so change happens and shift happens so long as folks are saying, you know, he was an individual president then who has shifted his view and imagine where we can go together if we can all be open to that. Right. All right. And in trying to save our democracy, Mm -hmm. where... Oh, I don't know what I was going with this question. Um, In trying to save our democracy, uh, what is your organization doing to cultivate uh, hope? Oh, Mm -hmm. that's what I was going to do. Where does our hope lie? And what is your organization doing to cultivate that hope? That's a great question. You know, one of the things that our organization believes, and it's at the heart of our theory of change, Eric, is that everything that we communicate has got to include, if not start with aspiration, right? It is never enough to be against something. We need to be for something and we need to portray it in the best, most effective possible ways, right? And so it starts with, for us, promoting what democracy could mean. And you already said the values earlier, community, voice, inclusion, and there are others. And asking people when they hear those words, what that means to them. So that's point one. Start with those values and imagine with people, open the public imagination, as I started this call by saying, what they think about themselves when they hear those words. And then think about, okay, now some of those folks might be saying it's about me voting and having an easier time of it. Some might say it's about me taking my child to understand what the community is doing, whether it's through a city council meeting or a PTA meeting or something else. So doing something civic minded like that. You get the point. We want to we want to make sure that we are promoting that inclusion, um, both through the systems that we're trying to shift toward democracy, as well as through the individual experiences that people are bringing because it's those folks that are defining it for themselves. And if individuals don't feel agency and hope themselves when it comes to democracy, then what's the point? Um, The final thing I'll say related to this question is that um, we're working hard to do that, starting with racial justice leaders and social justice leaders who are working in states like yours, in Georgia, for example, in Mississippi, for example, and other places in the South and other parts of the country, so that they can help us understand what their experience is and what their reactions to these values are so that we can do a diligent job in promoting them. The feedback loop has got to start with the experiences locally, and we really feel strongly about that. So if other people want to have the benefit that I have in subscribing to the newsletter and, and mm-hmm. finding out uh, more about the Opportunity Agenda and even getting in touch with you, how will they go about doing that? Well, um, opportunityagenda.org 
is where to go. Make it as simple as possible and you will find ways to sign up. You will find people like me and Cecilia, our media manager who's on this call and our email addresses. And I encourage everyone to reach out. We are here for you. Ladies and gentlemen, Ellen Buckman, the CEO of the Opportunity Agenda. Ellen, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I greatly appreciate you taking the time. Eric, thank you so much for the invitation. It was terrific to chat with you. I want to wish you the best for your evening and on. Thanks again. Yes, ma'am. All right, guys, we'll catch y'all on the other side. All right, and we are back. So as uh, I guess Porky Pig used to say, that's all, folks. Um, I just want to thank my guests. Uh, all of them for taking time out of their schedules to uh, come on and appear on the podcast. And I want to thank you all for listening and indulging. And I hope that uh, these conversations are beneficial to you to know who these people are to doing the work in the community and uh, trying to make our society a better place. And I hope that you continue to support the podcast. Um, no matter how many episodes or how long the interviews have to go, uh, I greatly appreciate y'all indulging me and, and giving me this opportunity. And with that, until next time.